0: Dan's not here. I was going to give him a hard time. I could dedicate this message to him since he's patiently endured and finally found someone after a good year and who knows how long that he can uh, propose to. I also want to thank Sherry and Dennis for their kind words and uh, encouragement. Thank you for that, and it is important for us to recognize that when we partner together, whether it's in sharing our money or our facilities with other ministries the Lord has raised up, we too share in some of the benefits, and uh, that is a blessing, good thing to bring out. A men's career advisory magazine, I think it's a web magazine, offers these ten easy steps to get ahead. On the job. Ten tips, they say, that will surely help you climb the infamous corporate ladder. Here's what they are. Number one, don't be, don't worry, be happy. Keep a smile on your face and emit a positive attitude. Two, take on more work. Volunteer your time demonstrates that you're willing to go that extra mile and do more than is necessary. Number three, arrive early, stay late. Coming to work 15 minutes before others gives the impression that you are always at work. And that's a good thing. Staying late shows supervisors you will spend extra time to meet a deadline. Four, show you care. Let others know that you are invaluable to the company, proposing solutions to optimize production. Five, toot your own horn. Who said shameless promotion, self-promotion never pays off? Be sure to get the credit you deserve and voice your actions. Six, quantify your success. The best way for your boss to see how much you are doing is to throw numbers at him. Seven, dress to impress. Looking the part is intrinsic to the complete package that will earn you respect and praise. Eight, ask how to get a raise. Let your boss know you're interested in moving up in the company. Nine, mingle with the right people. Hanging around influential people will make you uh, appear to to be in touch with what's going on. Choose who you will sit with during lunch or during coffee breaks, and if you spend time with the, the company's underachiever, you become associated with that person. And number 10, give your boss a hand. Helping your boss to finish a report creates a bond that goes beyond conventional boss subordinate relationship. Get on his good side. Talk to him as a mentor by asking him for advice and information. Demonstration or demonstrating that you have the right stuff. The qualities the boss is looking for has always been the basic way to Move up in a company to get those opportunities to get ahead in the corporate world, in business, and in many other areas of life as well. But as we saw last week, it is also a way to get opportunities to move ahead in the business of the kingdom of God. The real difference is that the boss of our business, the Lord Jesus Christ, is not looking for those with a plastic smile on their face who pretend that they care when they don't, who quantify their success with numbers, who tooth their own horn, who who dress to impress, and who offer a helping hand to the boss who has infinite power and wisdom. He is looking for those who possess very different qualities. Above all else, he is looking, and we looked at these last week, so this is somewhat of a review, and that I'll bring the rest of you up to speed here, hopefully. He looks for those who look to him for their strength to carry on, who understand that they have little to bring to the table and that he has everything to give them to make them truly successful in his estimation. Second, he looks for those who strive to keep his word. Third, he looks for those who openly and visibly identify with his holy name, with his person. That they stand apart, as he did, from the world around them, even from the religious world around them. Now, these are the qualities our Lord Jesus Christ particularly found among the Christians who made up a little insignificant church in the ancient city of Philadelphia a church that seemingly commanded little respect and influence in the community, and was even the object of much hostility by the religious community out of which that church had come. And we'll look at that in just a moment. In spite of that, the Lord had opened a door of opportunity for the church family, a door of influence, a door of ministry that perhaps resulted in some geographically and culturally difficult people to reach, becoming believers and followers of Jesus Christ. One of the commentators that I was reading put it this way, these believers may not have had taken Philadelphia by storm, but they made inroads. They made some inroads. It's also important to remember that there are only two churches out of the seven that our Lord spoke to in Revelation 2 and 3, who received no rebuke, no blistering criticism, only praise and encouragement. This was one of those churches. Insignificant, small. You would have missed it had you taken a trip to ancient Philadelphia, most likely. We pick up the story from the lips of our Lord Jesus Christ, Himself in the book of Revelation, chapter 3, verses 7 to 8. And I'd like for you just to, if you have a Bible, you might want to take a look at this and follow along. I'll also have it, I hope, on the screen behind me. And we're just going to look, first of all, at the first two verses of verses 7 and 8 that record the initial words that he had to this church that sort of were what we focused on last week. And I'll sort of give you a little interpretive uh, explanation as we move through it. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things says he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. I know your works. See, I have set before you. Literally, I have given you an open door. As we saw last week, an open door in the New Testament is clearly a figure of speech that spoke of an opportunity to have a ministry and to impact other people with the word of God and the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And our Lord says, I've given you an open door, and no one can shut it. If I open it, no one can shut it. And why did he give this church this open door? Why did he give this church an opportunity to make a difference in the lives of probably a few people, but nevertheless people outside the church? Because you have little strength, have kept my word, and have not denied my name. You see, that's what he was looking for in a church. Those who have little strength in themselves, but who knew what the Scripture teaches over and over again, that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Those who have kept my word, and those who have not denied my name by the way they speak or by the way they live. The application extends to every church and to every person who makes up a church. Our Lord blesses those who rely upon him, who keep his word, and who hold up his holy name with opportunities to make an eternal difference in the lives of others. Furthermore, in the next verses from Revelation Verse chapter 3, verse 9 through 13, we learn that if we persevere in relying upon Him in our devotion to His Word and in our determination to hold up His holy name, that our Lord Jesus Christ will make some extraordinary promises that I doubt no one at the church of Philadelphia ever forgot. He made some promises. If you endure... If you patiently hang in there and are faithful, what we could add some other scripture in there, faithful in the small things, you'll find that there'll be even greater doors of opportunity in this life and even more so in the life to come. I'm going to promise you several things. This is what he writes as or what he continues to say to the church in verse 9. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you. Because you have kept my command to persevere, I will also keep you from the hour of trial, which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have, that no one take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down out of heaven from my God. And I will write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The first promise that our Lord makes to this church, and by extension to all who possess the qualities that he saw in this church, who rely upon him, who hold fast his word, who hold up his name. He says, if you persevere, I promise you that you will have an impact even upon those who hate you. If you hold up my word, if you you continue to persevere in these things, I promise you that you will have an impact upon those, even those who hate you. Notice again the words of Revelation 3, 9, and 10, which I've repunctuated in keeping with an excellent presentation by Dr. John Nemola at Schaefer Seminary who basically repunctuates this sentence and the next sentence in Revelation 9 or verse 9 and 10 there in chapter 3. And I think he punctuates it well. This is what we read. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not But lie, Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you because you have kept my command to persevere, period. Richard Emmons, a commentator for the Jewish Christian publication Israel My Glory, I take this publication. They've always got a lot of neat articles in there, uh, biblical articles, explains the verse very well. And he writes, these were Jewish people who were spiritually estranged from God and who chose them. Who, the God who chose them, and therefore were hostile toward their Messiah and his program. He continues, the translation here is difficult. Literally, the Greek says, behold, I am giving out of the synagogue of Satan. That as Jesus says he will be bringing some recalcitrant Jewish folks into the church seems more likely his meaning. Because his love for Jewish people, he exhorted the church at Philadelphia to continue its efforts to teach Jewish people the truth about him, their efforts would be successful. It doesn't mean that the whole synagogue was going to become Christian. But he's saying there will be some, a few. They will come around. And they will praise you because you belong to Christ and you are willing to take the message to them and not give up on them. What our Lord Jesus Christ was saying here to this church is what he said to the Apostle Paul, who was ready to throw in the towel at Corinth a number of years earlier because of the strong opposition he received from the Jewish community in that city. And this is what the Lord said to him in a vision. Now the Lord spoke to Paul in the night by a vision, Do not be afraid, but speak and do not, be, do not keep silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack you or hurt you, for I have many people in this city. There's a clear application here that I hope we don't miss, and that is that those most hostile to our ministry often become the people we are privileged to reach for our Lord Jesus Christ. I don't know about you personally, but I'll just go back in an early time in my life, and I think I've shared part of this story before, but I had two very close friends that I went to grade school all the way through college with. Although one didn't go to the same college, but we were very close. And never they were both, at the time, one claimed to be an atheist and the other claimed to be an agnostic. The atheist, he fought Everything I would ever say, if I even brought up the name of Jesus Christ, he was in my face. He was so upset. Angry. And his father and mother, they were even more angry. And I had to be rather delicate, but I didn't give up. I had another friend. He was the agnostic. And he never gave me a hard time. Do you know which one became a Christian? The atheist. He fought it and hated it. But then God worked in his heart in a miraculous way over a particular summer we spent together. And he became a Christian. He's the one I mentioned a few years ago that passed away. Died giving a lecture before his company. He oversaw some 28,000 people at Martin Lockheed Corporation in Denver, Colorado. And the people of that company, the leaders, the president. Stands up in church and tells what a remarkable testimony he had for Jesus Christ. I was in tears, gang. On the other hand, this summer I was climbing mountains with my agnostic friend. And he's still an agnostic. Every year I preach the same gospel message. And every year he says, that's great, Arch, you need it. But I don't. A lot of times we've come to realize that those who fight us the most may often be the ones that turn around and become believers in Jesus Christ and go on to be great followers of His as well. Let's don't lose that principle. And I think that's what the Lord's saying here. Second, our Lord promised them, this church at Philadelphia, this humble little church, and the people that had very little impact but were having some impact, Our Lord promised them that there would come a time when they no longer would have to patiently endure tribulation. There will come a day when they will no longer have to persist through trying and difficult circumstances like they had been. Because when all the people living on this planet begin to enter a time of trouble and suffering and horror and death predicted in the Bible, which our Lord Jesus called the time of great tribulation, Believers will be removed before that time even begins, and they will be among those that will be removed. Listen again to what our Lord says in Revelation 3.10. I will keep you literally out of the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Most Bible scholars agree that the hour of time or time that is being spoken of here is clearly chapter 6 to chapter 19 in the whole book of Revelation, which describes all the horrors that are coming upon this planet Earth during that time of great tribulation. That seems very clear even to the most uh, skeptical scholars of Scripture. On the other hand, this time was a time of judgment when God's wrath would be poured out on the earth the earth that had been so much the site of so much injustice and and, uh, and had a history of of terrible atrocities and things of that nature, God now is pouring out his horrors of judgment as described in chapters 6 to 19 in Revelation. Now, I read Dr. John Neymel's paper and it's like 20, 30 pages of technical information. I've read books that have been written on this verse alone. So for me to try to to go in and explain all the details of this passage and explore its full implications today would be difficult. On the other hand, bear in mind the historical significance of the church at Philadelphia, which we looked at last week, and that is that each one of the churches, I believe personally, and there's a lot of people that agree with me, and there are some that don't, but I believe that each of these churches was a a prophetic picture that that our Lord drew out that would reveal a period of time in the history of the church and the particular time that this church, the church at Philadelphia, would picture, I believe, and many others believe as well, is the past 200 years of church history. A church that will be a vital part of the church scene at the very time that the Lord Jesus Christ returns to take away His church to catch away those that are believers in him and who meet in churches all over this world, but they are figuratively part of this Philadelphian church that he spoke to in Revelation 3. But the point of this passage in Revelation 3.10 is that while all Christians will be raptured, it will be those who have been faithful during hardship and suffering in their devotion to Christ and his word That will most appreciate the teaching that they will be spared the worst tribulations the world has ever known. Suffering and horror beyond description. What a comfort for all faithful Christians who labor and who serve their Lord under difficult circumstances, even hostile circumstances in the case of Philadelphia, to know that our, that our, that while our present troubles may be difficult, Whatever they are, and I know I'm looking at a group of people where all of us share problems and troubles, but while our present troubles may be difficult and may seem even great, we will not have to endure the worst of troubles that is coming upon this earth. And that is the point of verse 10. It's not excluding Christians who are not faithful. They will be raptured as well, but it's simply highlighting the truth that this that has, is, and always will be most comforting, that this truth will, ha- will always be most comforting to those who are in the heat of battle for the Lord Jesus Christ. Those are the ones that really thrive on the rapture. I think I've only maybe in 20 years preached once or twice on the biblical uh, support for the doctrine of the rapture coming before the tribulation period. You know, the people that most love to hear those kind of messages, the person that's going through the trials and the heartaches and that's in the midst of the battle. That's what was going on at the Church of Philadelphia. And that's why our Lord shares that truth with this church. The third, third thing he promises them, he promises that he will come quickly to rapture them away from this time of great tribulation on earth. He says in verse 11, Behold, I'm coming quickly. Hold fast. Take a hold forcefully what you have that no one may take your crown. I will come quickly, unexpectedly. There will be no opportunity to make up for lost time. No opportunity to get ready at the last minute. This will not be a Hollywood movie. You've seen those movies. You know where the, the asteroid is coming from outer space and it's headed to earth. We've only got seven days until it gets here. Get your house in order. We're not talking here about when our Lord Jesus comes back to this earth to establish His kingdom in Revelation 19. We're talking about when He comes for His church. And He says, I'm going to come quickly. You won't have even an hour or a day or a minute to prepare. In fact, the Bible says it will be in the twinkling of an eye that, boom, He's here and we're taken away. And the point is clear. The faithful need to hold on to being faithful. Those holding on need to keep holding on. If you spent your life relying upon the Lord Jesus Christ, keeping His Word and not denying His name, don't let these qualities slip away from your life. Because He may come at that moment. Hold them tight and keep walking through life. And looking for the doors that He's opening. The opportunities that He may open for you. No matter how small they may be. Or how big. Keep investing your life for Him. Hold on and one day you and I and all here who have been faithful will receive that victorious crown of appreciation from our Lord when He sets that down up over our head. And He says, thank you. I appreciate the life you lived on my behalf on this earth. You've lived a life well, and you've invested your life well. Thank you. That's that victorious crown, the Stephanos, they call it in Greek. It's the crown of the victor. And it said to all who wore the crown, this man is to be looked up to, or this woman is to be appreciated and valued. The Apostle Paul sounded the same warning to the Christians in Colossians chapter 2 when he said, Let no one cheat you out of your reward, trick you into giving up the essentials, the, the things you're working for in your life for Jesus Christ. Paul said the same thing in essence in 1 Corinthians 9. When he kept it before himself, he says, I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest while I preach to others I myself should be disqualified from running the race and receiving the crown. In the Bible, we read about several characters who forfeited their reward or opportunity to someone else. The most famous is, of course, Esau, who sold his birthright for a bowl of soup to Jacob. Saul forfeited his kingdom to David and his household. Moses forfeited his opportunity to enter the promised land. And Joshua entered in his place. The Bible's exhortation to all of us is don't give up. Don't surrender your confidence in Christ and His Word and His person. Don't turn away from an opportunity He has entrusted to you. Because in the end, our confidence and our stewardship of what He has given us will be greatly rewarded. With even greater opportunities in the world to come. The fourth promise he makes is he promises that he will make those who overcome pillars in the temple of his God. Notice verse 12 of chapter 3 of Revelation. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God and he shall go out no more. Literally not never. Double negative. Pillars were highly valued in the days in which the book of Revelation was written. Pillars not only contributed to the support of the structure, conveying a sense of security and permanence to those who saw it. Pillars also helped bring the eyes up into the various beautiful portraits and murals and inscriptions that were on the building. And they lend lend to the building a certain aura of importance and honor and dignity. Even in our day, you take a trip to Washington, D.C., and right away you can spot the important buildings. they got pillars, big pillars. Even the White House has pillars. Whoever overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. Pillars were highly valued in the days in which the book of Revelation was written. They gave honor and dignity to a structure. But in our Lord's eternal city, the pillars that will contribute to the support and sense of permanence in that city and that will help create an aura of importance and dignity and honor will not be made of concrete and stone placed one upon the other. The pillars in that city in that temple will be pillars amidst living stones And the pillars themselves will be people. Persons, women and men who've remained faithful in whatever work and opportunities the Lord has provided for them to do. These will be the true pillars of the church. How often do we hear the phrase, so and so is a pillar of the church. Sometimes it's meant as a compliment. Sometimes it's meant as not a compliment. But believe me, when we get to eternity... The pillars of the church, of the temple, the living temple that will bring glory to the name of Jesus Christ, it's also called his bride, and the church, the pillars in that church will indeed be there for honor and importance and dignity, and will bring a sense of, of permanence and security and confidence amongst the living stones that make up that building that temple furthermore the lord adds and he shall not go out no more literally not never it's a double negative as i mentioned he shall not never go out from the presence of the lord jesus christ again now, i believe this is a latotes And we've talked about that before, using a negative in grammar, a figure of speech, a negative figure of speech to drive home a positive. In this case, he's saying the flip side is that he will not never go out of the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ means he shall enjoy the privilege of a special intimacy and closeness to Christ that will never end. It will never end. And that brings to the fifth point. He promises, the fifth promise, he promised to inscribe three names that will highlight and identify those who have been made pillars in the temple of my God. Verse 12 of chapter 3 continues. After he says, and they shall go out no more, not never, and I will write on him the name, or her, we could add, the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down out of heaven from my God, and I will write on him or her my new name. Now as we read these words, bear in mind that in the city of Philadelphia, Christians were nobodies. The church was humanly unimportant. That seems to be the clear implication of this passage. Today we would probably soften it with a fancy phrase like it was ecclesiastically challenged. But the bottom line was the same. The Christians in the church were not highly regarded. They were not highly thought of. Although they endured patiently hardship for their Lord, they were treated with indifference or as fools that no one wanted to be identified with, Jew or Gentile. But our Lord makes a promise to create some poetic justice that will stand for all eternity in sharp contrast to the insignificance and unimportance experienced by many of God's people on this earth. My mind just goes to the book of Hebrews, that last part of chapter 11, where it talks about what shall I say then? Still others, they don't even have a name had trial of mockings and scourgings, yes, of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two and tempted, were slain with a sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted in torment, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth, and all these having obtained a good testimony through faith. These are the nobodies. Someone like the ecclesiastically challenged people of Philadelphia and the Lord says, they're the pillars of the future church. They're the pillars of the future church. And I'm going to give them a name. In fact, three names. That will cause everyone to look up to them. That will give them that sense of significance and importance. Now this was important to me as I thought about this. And, and this is something I've thought about many times seems like as I get older, I think more about rewards and eternity. I grew up in a home in which my father was the president of a family-owned business. And it was the funeral business. And you're looking to build relationships with families that are long-term. You have mother and father and then others that in the family that you will care for along the way. And so I was constantly drilled with this idea that we're in the business here of making a name, of making a reputation for ourselves. We want a name that people respect and that they trust and that they look up to. My father would hammer that home constantly. Now, what Jesus is saying here is that he was going to write three names upon these faithful believers so that everyone in the eternal kingdom would respect and look up to these people who labored in obscurity, sometimes ridicule for the Lord Jesus Christ. Names that would say, here indeed is a high-profile believer, a close companion of Jesus Christ. Here is a man who truly belongs to God or a woman who truly belongs to God. And Jesus says, I will write on him the name of my God. Indicating he belongs to God, he's always been loyal to his God. Secondly, he says, Here is a man who now belongs to the city of my God, the heavenly New Jerusalem. And he writes or speaks, And the name of the city of my God, the New Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God. This is his new identity. He's a citizen of this new city. And he's not just a citizen. He's an important citizen. Lastly, Jesus says, Here is a man who belongs to Jesus Christ. In fact, he is one of my closest companions. In fact, we're on a new name basis. You know, people talk about in our culture, well, I'm on a first name basis. This is a new name basis. Because Jesus says, I will write on him my new name. And I think what he's saying there is is that this new name is a name that will represent the closest of relationships. That here is one of our Lord's closest companions, this pillar in the church. The temple made of living stones that will exist for all eternity. A crown of appreciation. A pillar in the temple of my God. A statement that he shall not never go out. A promise that he will bear the name or she will bear the name of my God. The name of the city of my God and my new name. These are meant to be very tangible rewards for those who overcome. What Jesus is promising here in point four and five is he's promising rewards. And he's promising the kind of rewards that are tangible. We might add other rewards mentioned in the previous letters that uh, we haven't had a chance to look at all of them, but we've looked at some of them. You may remember some of these, given the opportunity to eat from the tree of life, given the crown of life, given the hidden manna to eat, given a white stone with a new name, given power over the nations, given the morning star clothed with white garments, not never having his name blotted from the book of life, that is, he will have a superlative experience of life, having his name confessed before my father, before his angels, granted to sit with me on my throne. These are rewards. And let me ask you a question. What do these things do for you and me? I think if we were honest, some of us might have to say, they really don't do much for me. In fact, even the idea that the Lord will reward me for my life if I live it like He wants me to leaves me sort of cold. Many believers today know nothing about rewards. It's a totally foreign subject, never discussed or preached on in churches. Many others that do know about them dismiss them. They say, we need to move beyond this idea of of these tangible rewards and let the Christ, Christ's love for us and the cross motivate us to live like we should live as mature Christians. This is how we should think. Yet our Lord Jesus Christ Himself, in His words to His disciples in the Gospels, and in His words to the churches here in Revelation 2 and 3, takes the time to spell out specifically the tangible rewards He wants to give us because we have overcome for Him. And my question is, shouldn't we want what he wants for us, even if we are not sure what it is, or even if we don't quite understand it yet? Should we maybe take the time to get to understand it and get to understand and know what he means so that it can become more of a tangible motivation for us? The Bible knows nothing of this kind of a theological oversight that is part of our culture today. The gift of eternal life is a gift given to all who believe without any reservations, without any strings attached. However, rewards are given to all who overcome. It's one thing to have eternal life. It's another thing to be given rewards because you've overcome having used the gift of eternal life. The Bible never teaches that all true believers will overcome some true believers will not overcome. On the other hand, our Lord Jesus Christ makes clear His desire to give us these rewards because they motivate us. They motivate us to rely upon Him for things He's called us to do. They motivate us to keep His Word. They motivate us to hold up His person. They motivate us to invest our life wisely in the things that will result in eternal dividends. They're our motivation. Many people think that's sort of bad, you know, to talk about motivation as a Christian. Shouldn't we just be naturally motivated? No, we're not. Think about your children. Our children know we love them. But that will not motivate them to work hard in school. <laughs> Sherry and I appreciate that. That will motivate them to turn in their work. As most parents know, it's going to take more than love to motivate the children, our children, to do well in school. They need, first of all, the fear that there will be some discipline behind it if they don't work. But better yet, the prospect of a tangible reward. Something our child child desires that will motivate them to work up to their potential. I have a weight problem. I remember when I was a junior high, my mom would take me to the, to the local department store, and we'd go up to the, the sixth or fifth floor, and that's where they had the husky sizes for junior high kids. I didn't care for the word husky. I've never liked it, never liked it since. But I went to buy husky pants there at, at the junior high department at Lazarus. To combat my weight problem, I launched an all-out fitness campaign at 16 years of age, and that campaign's still going on today. When I was 16, the tangible reward was making the football team. And that's why I went down and I climbed the barbells and I ran and I did the things that I knew I needed to to get in fitness and good shape to play football and to keep the weight somewhat in check. At 40 years old, it was the freedom to eat what I wanted. That's why I worked out. I'd work out, I'd run 15 miles and come back and eat homemade ice cream for the rest of the evening. And my philosophy was, if I get the furnace hot enough, I can burn anything. But then I'm 61. And I've suddenly come to realize that I'll settle. My tangible reward is to settle for the doctor's praise After my annual physical, and just an all-around good feeling of health, of good health, and thank God for it. That's why I still work out. But I needed the tangible, the tangible reward. When I was in college, in seminary, I had to work very hard for the grades I received. I wasn't a natural student, never have been. Each quarter, each semester, I would drive myself hard to study and study. I'd study for tests. I would study hard and write term papers. I'd do everything I could to pass those courses and to do relatively well in them. I got mostly B's and A's. What kept me working so hard? Yes, I knew that God loved me at the time. I was a believer and I enjoyed my Christian life and I was in love with my Lord. But I needed something tangible. It was short-term. And so at the end of each semester, each quarter, I'd take a trip. I'd go ski. I'd go climb mountains. I'd do something. And I'd look forward to that. And that helped me keep moving and working hard because I could see something at the end of the tunnel that I would enjoy doing. Something I could dream about. Something tangible we can and should use to motivate ourselves to overcome in a world that is doing everything it can to keep us and defeat us for God. And our Lord promises that he will make us a pillar in the temple of our God, of his God, our God as well, and inscribe upon us the name of our God, the name of his city, and the new name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus himself is giving us something tangible, something we can hang on to and dream about, Something that our minds can go to and say, there's something coming. This life is so short. And as you get to be 60, you want to just shake a person who's 20 and say, oh, it's going so fast. And you don't realize it. And they don't. And all the talk in the world isn't going to make a difference. But for those of us that have begun to season some in life, we begin to realize it's just so short. What's coming? I need something to keep me hanging in there and I begin to understand that God has something so wonderful planned for us as believers in Jesus Christ. I'm a child of God because I believed in Him, in my Savior. And He gave me the gift of life, but I know there's more to it than just that. And yet most people, I shouldn't say most, but many people seem to stop short of that. Always bear in mind that it is our Lord's good pleasure to give us these things. Just as we as parents look forward to giving our children things that we believe will at one day enhance their life, their adult life as, as it goes. We look forward maybe to, maybe we bought a savings bond or a couple savings bonds or several savings bonds and when those bonds mature and our children mature to a point where they can appreciate the value of those savings bonds, we we may say, we want you to have this so you can buy a home or you can buy a car or you can help pay for a college education because we want them to have it. But if we try to tell them we put away a savings bond and they're seven years old or eight years old, they're saying, who cares? Did you put away a Snickers bar? That's what I would have said. Friends, what motivates you as a Christian? Think about this question. What motivates you as a Christian? Are you involved in any kind of spiritual struggle? If we're honest, I think we all have to say, yes, there's some kind of struggle we're involved in. We're constantly engaged in very concrete spiritual struggles. Maybe the the struggle is to speak the truth in love and we're gossips. Or the struggle is financial integrity and we're stingy with our money. Or the struggle is service for Christ and we're stingy with our time. Or the struggle is loving a brother or sister in Christ and we're stingy with our love. Or maybe the struggle is relying upon Christ and we tend to always want to trust ourselves, never trust anyone else. Maybe it's denying, not denying His name, but holding up His name. And yet in our lives we somewhat negate the name of Christ. Maybe the struggle is with just patiently enduring for Him in ministry, and yet we're ready to give up as a Christian. Are you motivated, really motivated, to work hard, to be all that the Lord, our Lord, your Lord, wants you to be in the midst of the struggle? Or are you simply saying to yourself, what will it take to get by? What will it take to get by? To keep my Heavenly Father off my back. Just get that passing grade. I just want to go about living my life in my way, and I, I really don't want Him to bother me unless I really need Him. I like the arrangement where don't call me God, I'll call you. Is that where you are? I hope not. If you're taking an honest look in the mirror today or tonight, or whenever, and you know that you're not motivated, or perhaps you're motivated for the wrong reasons, perhaps you need to think about just what it would be like to be a pillar in the temple of our God, to be so intimate with Jesus Christ that you're on a first, I should say, new-name basis with him. And there's many other promises Rewards for those who are faithful. Set your heart to learning about those rewards. Thinking about them. Dwelling upon them. And it will transform your life. Our Father.